What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Come with me if you want to live. That's it, man. Game over, man. Game over. The Force will be with you. Always. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and it's time to get satanic. In the next couple of episodes, we're going to be digging into the roots, impact, and legacy of the moral fear that hung over America during the 80s and early 90s, best known as the Satanic Panic. In 2011, three men, Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. and Jason Baldwin, known as the West Memphis Three, were released from prison following a plea deal which found that they were innocent of the crimes of which they had been imprisoned for. They served a sentence of 18 years for the murder of three boys, Christopher Byers, Michael Moore and Stevie Branch, in 1993. Why do I mention this crime? It is considered one of the last impacts of the Satanic Panic. The crime was considered to have occult overtones and the suspects were identified because of the supposed occult interest and a preference for heavy metal. Simply put, they were profiled and presumed guilty from the outset. But where did this fear and assumption of occultism come from? And what drove it to such levels that three men lost 18 years of their lives? The trigger point for the satanic panic is often identified as being the release of the book Michelle Remembers in 1980, which recounts alleged ritual abuse of a five-year-old Michelle Smith. While this is a major contributing factor, and something we will get into in the next episode, it's really just the straw that broke the camel's back. What's more important is to understand why this book struck such a nerve and why it became a beacon for the moral panic. What we're going to discuss today is how the growth of cultism and the supernatural from the 60s and through the 70s stoked the fires of fear and created the perfect platform for the satanic panic. To such an extent that government policy would be influenced by it and individuals would end up spending time in court and jail for non-existent crimes. So before we get to the 80s, let's go back to the early 60s and a young man by the name of Anton LaVey. LaVey was starting to make a small name for himself in certain areas of California society. An upstart who was challenging some beliefs by refining and collecting a series of existing ideas. A little bit of Alistair Crowley's Thelema, a pinch of Iron Rand's thrown in, and some other half-baked occultist black magic ideas, all mixed together. He wanted to be taken seriously and to challenge the social norms, but it was all a bit inconsistent. However, this was something new and different for the socialites who flocked to his side. The majority had no intention of taking it seriously, it just passed the time and gave them something different to talk about at dinner parties. 
However, there were a few that were caught in LeMay's inner circle and became part of his future interests. The group had no name, but it was starting to gain attention. LeVay knew that this attention needed to be capitalised upon to achieve his own ends of destabilising the existing religious norms, mostly the Christian church. At least that was his articulated primary directive. I'm sure the assumed wealth, power and influence was an added bonus. It was suggested, almost as a joke, that the only way he was going to achieve his ends was to start his own religion. LeVay seized on this idea and knew that it had to have an impact, a gut punch to the Christian church. He would aim for the highest form of blasphemy. He would start a church, but not in the name of God, in the name of Satan. And so it became the Church of Satan. If LeVay was anything, he was a brilliant promoter and showman. He knew which buttons to press and how to manipulate presentation for maximum impact. With this in mind, he knew he couldn't just declare the start of the church at any time. No. He chose a specific date and the year helped. On the spring equinox of 1966, April 30th into May 1st, the church began. Why this date? It is referred to as Walpurgis Night, one of the nights during the year when the power of witchcraft is at its height. Having opened the doors, LeVay declared 1966 the first year of the rule of Satan. Anno Satanus. The core belief of the church centred around two fundamental elements. The first, the integration of magic and logic. The second, a belief in the need for self-indulgence, carnality and pleasure instead of self-denial. These two fundamentals would be expanded upon before the end of the decade. Of course, they also needed an idol to place at the head of the church, to be their figurehead. The goat-headed representation of Satan, Baphomet, was chosen and still remains. Between 1966 and 1969, the Church of Satan became involved in several events that would attract the attention of news media all over the world. Of course, made bigger by LeVay. The officiating of a wedding within a year of the church starting, which included world press and a naked woman being used as an altar. In 1967, the first baptism into the church. LeVay's own daughter, Zena, who was three at the time. This gained letters of protest from several citizen groups and a couple of highly placed officials in the American Catholic Church. This was topped off by the first satanic funeral in December 1967. What made this such an unusual event was that the deceased was a former member of the American Navy. So the funeral consisted of a naval honour guard, stood to attention while black-robed LeVay conducted the created funerary satanic ceremony. While the Navy tried to make little of it, the Catholic Church made it clear that they were shocked and appalled by the events. These events established the Church of Satan as a legitimate organisation, recognised the world over. Small franchise groups sprang up in other parts of America and Europe. LeVay made it his mission to vi visit as many as possible. This legitimization of the organization made the Christian churches nervous, 
especially when LeVay published the church's central text, the Satanic Bible, in 1969. For many, the growth of the Church of Satan had taken the door closed against spiritual evil that had been opened a crack in society by the hippie movement and flung it open. The fear of satanic evil entering the world had been given a face and normalised in America. On its own, the publishing of the Satanic Bible would have just been another stunt with little impact in the wider world. However, 1968 and 69 brought with them a series of other events that would raise the profile of Satan in pop culture and add a new evil face to the rogues gallery. In 1968, The Devil Rides Out was released by Hammer Studios, an adaptation of the 1934 Dennis Wheatley novel of the same name. The film and book follow the confrontation between Christopher Lee's Duke de Richelieu and Charles Gray's Mokata, the leader of a black magic satanic cult. The film features an appearance by Baphomet and Crowley inspired rituals. It reduces much of the usual hammer camp and plays up the weird and unsettling. The third act in which the hero and his colleagues are trapped in a protection circle while under attack from evil forces is tense and filled with satanic imagery. However, the film ends well with the hero succeeding and the Duke de Richelieu commenting that it was God that saved them. All is well with the world. In the same year though, we also got a very different story. Rosemary's Baby tells the story of Rosemary Woodhouse and her troubled pregnancy. Now this could be a dry human drama, however the twist is that she believes that she has been impregnated by Satan himself to give birth to the Antichrist on Earth. As her paranoia grows, it is alluded to that others in her building are involved, including her husband. It's never fully revealed if her paranoia is valid or not, but there is a very clear reading of the film in which she does give birth to Satan's child, and that it has come about so that her husband can further his acting career. More than that, Satanists win. The child is born, they get their reward, and life goes on. The Devil Rides Out is a horror fantasy set in the 1920s. While it does contain specific satanic imagery that can be linked to the likes of Aleister Crowley in the Church of Satan, it's still a fantasy and removed from everyday life. Rosemary's Baby, however, is a contemporary film for the year in which it was released. The characters are well-to-do people living in modern New York, the film is less fantastic and more subversive. It makes the audience as paranoid as Rosemary. It places the fear of this Christian evil in the viewer's regular lives. The film was a huge success and made a name for director Roman Polanski, his first US movie and it gained critical and audience praise as well as awards. The film would start to inspire a number of knockoff similar films none of which are worth mentioning. However, it gained attention in a couple of other ways. Anton LaVey started to circulate rumours that not only did he, did he act as a consultant on the film, but he also played Satan in the infamous rape scene. Neither fact is true. However, when did that ever get in the way for LaVey? This film became tangentially associated with the Church of Satan in the public's mind. 
This connection would lead one group down a very dark path. Up until 1969, the introduction of Satanism into modern culture had felt like a stunt. One of bad taste and cheap thrills, but a stunt nonetheless. This had been bolstered by a shift in the horror genre at the time to a more satanic edge. To many outside the core of the church, it was harmless. However, it had still introduced new imagery and content to the zeitgeist. This was to hit home in August 1969. Two years previously, Charles Manson arrived in San Francisco. A former thief, pimp and con man, he quickly became part of the city's bohemian culture and all that entailed, drugs, free love and all kinds of half-assed mysticism and occultism. He utilised these beliefs and manipulated young, impressionable minds longing for experience and something bigger than they had found. He claimed to have magic powers and quoted half-baked philosophical text, much like Anton LaVey had done with the pseudo-intellectuals and socialite class. Manson was creating a tight circle around him from the counter-cultural communities. He called them the family. He would make prophecies about end, the end of the world and the place the family would make in the future world. These ideas and other occult and anti-society rhetoric established Manson as the leader of the family and the family were enthralled to his power. They were deadly loyal. This power was exercised over the family in August 1969 when several members were sent out to kill or as they put it do the devil's business. Three members of the family entered the home of Roman Polanski. He was away in Europe at the time, however his eight-month pregnant wife Sharon Tate and two friends were home. All were butchered, leaving a horrific, blood-drenched scene. When the crime was reported, the public across the world was shocked. When it was finally connected to the family and Charles Manson months later, and following several missteps from the police, Manson and the family were arrested on December 1st, 1969. While the trial in 1970 would reveal the true, vile nature of Manson and what he called Helter Skelter, many the world over were already making their own connections. There were stories of Manson being involved in the Church of Satan as well as other black magic occult groups. However, whatever people thought, the fact remained that this group and the Church of Satan had grown out of the hippie and counterculture of California. The decade of free love had not just ended, it had ended in blood and violence, and Satan was stood standing in the wreckage. The death of the 60s and the rise of an interest in the occult and devil worship opening up the doors for Hollywood. There was an occultist saw that needed an itching, Movie studios were more than willing to oblige, and they would provide more than Satan. Peeling back more of the spiritual living of the 60s, audiences were introduced to folk horror with The Wicker Man in 1973, in which a devout Christian police officer is manipulated into visiting a remote Scottish island and eventually becomes the sacrifice of a pagan ritual. This highlighted that the counterculture was more than just anti-Christian. It held ideals of moving back to an earlier time of belief. People shouldn't just be worried about Satanists, but witches and pagans as well. 
This would coincide with the continued growth of Wicca and ideas around crystal healing and other alternative lifestyles in the 70s. While pagan rites were interesting, Christianity was still the primary target. In 1973, the world got the second big satanic film that would change the direction of pop culture. While Rosemary's Baby had placed successful Satanism in the homes of normal modern people, The Exorcist was going to introduce accidental access to demons via toys. Every concept we now have about demons and Ouija boards in movies are spawned from this one film. While I have talked about the events of the 60s, I have waited until this point to talk about the Ouija board. This is because of the fact that its place in pop culture changed so dramatically from this point on. Originally released as a toy in the early 1910s, the Ouija board was marketed as a family game. A fun way to speak to dead Aunt Maureen. Hundreds of thousands were sold through the decades, and they were wheeled out at parties as a parlour game. Something fun to do with the kids. I should highlight that there were areas of society that were concerned about them from the beginning, mostly the more puritanical religious groups. They were also used by mediums for seances, but not as much as you would think. If anything, they were looked down upon by the spiritualist community for removing them from the equation. By the 50s, they were falling out of favour, although still readily available in toy shops. They did, however, make a comeback with the more spiritualist elements of the counterculture movement in the 60s, but still seen as toys. Enter the Exorcist and the story of the young girl Reagan, played by Linda Blair. In the film, Reagan communicates with a spirit that turns out to be a demon. By talking to him via the Ouija board, she opens herself up to possession and has to be exorcised. The film is a classic of the genre and a milestone in horror cinema, but it also had a real-world impact. The instant reaction from some Christian groups was that it was anti-Christian and promoted the world of the devil. Others were horrified by the special effects and the actions of a young Reagan. The film was also linked to a curse, which stated that several accidents and incidents happened on set during the filming. Critics praised it with caution, but the classification boards were less coy. It was banned in many countries. This only stoked the fire of speculation and rumour. It also informed a generation that the Ouija board wasn't a toy. It's a tool to speak not only to the dead, but demons, and comes with a laundry list of rules for using it safely, many of which have been created since the release of The Exorcist. Now we should understand that while certain religious and morality groups determined the film as anti-Christian, I strongly disagree with this. The film not only makes the supernatural elements of the religion real in a modern world and makes it clear that they are evil, it presents two priests as human, approachable and determined. Their sacrifice and faith is what saves Reagan in the end. If anything, I think it supports the church. Now, not only were Satanists in our modern cities, but demons could get to our kids through a board game. Three years later, the third story of the Satanic Trilogy of the period was released. In 1976, The Omen was released, and audiences were shown that Satan was our children. 
The Omen recounts the story of an American ambassador in England. While there, he and his wife have a child, but a satanic cult switched the child with another, the other being a child possibly birthed by a jackal, the son of Satan. After a series of deaths, the ambassador is finally confronted by the conclusion that he has to kill his son, Damien, to save the world. However, circumstances prevent this and Damien survives to be adopted by another high-ranking diplomat. Satan is now in world politics. Now it can be argued that these are just films, however there were three incredibly successful films that had not only box office receipts but news media coverage and morality groups raising their profile. In the background the Church of Satan was still active and had a presence in American media. LaVey having something to say about each of the films. While I have mentioned several films, there are a slew of other imitators, all cashing on the success of these satanic films. It can be posited that films and popular media set the cultural mindset more than fact and history. In the decade between 1966 and 1976, satanic influence had escalated and many had taken notice. There was a growing concern about evil influences directing society down a dark path. For some, as well as occult fears, this included the progress of civil rights, the growth of the gay community and rights for women around birth control and abortion. One man in particular was voicing this concern, televangelist Jerry Falwell, a Christian morality group leader who became involved with party politics in the early 70s, supporting the Republicans. Falwell said in 76, Americans have literally stood by and watched as godless, spineless leaders have brought our nation floundering to the brink of death. Strong words. Falwell formed his group, The Moral Majority, in 1979 and stood with other morality groups such as Christian Voice and the National Christian Action Coalition all formed between 1976 and 1979. These groups together were referred to as the New Christian Right. For many more conservative Americans, these spokesmen and their groups were a line in the sand, defenders against what they saw as the degradation of American society. They were a direct response to the Church of Satan, other spiritualist groups, as well as a more liberal society that had grown out of the 60s. We will hear more about these groups in the next two episodes. For some, the New Christian Right was a standard bearer. They were holding on to the post-war values of the nuclear family with white picket fences and clear-cut morality. They were, to some, the light in what was being perceived as very dark times, and they were just as vocal and manipulative as LaVey. It's a discussion for another day, but there is most definitely a historical line from these new Christian right groups to the extreme Christian supporters of Trump today. These groups protested films and tried to censor media, but they were also calling direction to evidence that the threat of Satan was real. Before we get to their gold standard, Michelle remembers next episode, there are two books worth mentioning that contribute to that book's popularity and infamy. The first was released in 1972 written by Mike Wonk and called The Satan Seller. The book chronicles Wonk's life 
and how as an orphan he was used in satanic rituals as a child and soon became a practicing member of the religion. He recounts how he participated and eventually led ceremonies that included sacrifice of animals, orgies, kidnap and rape, all in order to raise demons and converse with Satan. However, this wouldn't be a tell-all book without the redemption arc for the teller of the story. Wok fought in Vietnam and his experiences there changed him and allowed him to find Jesus. Although I have to suggest, if you believe in worship and claim to have conversed with the devil in some way, believing in Jesus should sort of come as part and parcel of that, even if you reject his teachings. Regardless, the fighting changed him and he returned to America to become a devout evangelical Christian. Wonk doesn't do things in small measures, high priest of satanic sect to evangelist Christian. Within a year of its release, the book was a bestseller in Christian circles and Wonk was a celebrity. The man could turn away from evil and walk the path of the righteous and make a few dollars doing it. He went on speaking tours and even released comedy talking albums, Alive in 1975 and In the King's Court in 1977. These also became hugely popular and were played regularly on Christian radio stations all over America. He was such an influencing force in American Christian circles that he was the cover figure of Christian magazine Harmony in September 1976. Where Falwell would become the strong moral centre of the Christian right, Wonk would become the jester. However, he had the advantage of alleged involvement and first-hand knowledge of satanic practices. His claims in the book and on stage laid the foundation for what was considered standard satanic ritual practices, some of which matched activities conducted by the Church of Satan and would be regurgitated in Michelle Remembers, cementing these ideas as fact in many people's minds. We will discuss Wonk more in the next episode and how his standing as an expert impacted public perception of Satanism. So, by the late 70s, the fear of satanic cults and practices actually taking place in America was taking a strong hold in the conservative Christian community. It was sneaking into the media, but had yet to take a large foothold. For that to occur, something needed to happen in the real world that was removed from the confines of religious groups. Something that impacted normal people. A leaking of possible demonic influence into a regular family. Enter the Lutz family and their Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is a triple bill of horror that would lay the groundwork for several elements of pop culture for decades. I have covered this in a lot more detail in episodes 36 and 37 way back in November 2017. However, let's go through some more of the details. The first element of the story is the murder of the DeFeo family in the early hours of November 13, 1974, by son of the family, Ronald Butch DeFeo. He shot and killed both his parents and his four siblings, all while they slept. He reported finding the bodies on the evening of November 13th, but was soon arrested for the crime and a year later sentenced for the crime. However, the crime and its circumstances resulted in a slew of conspiracy theories about why and how he committed the crime. Some involved made connections to local organised crime or the involvement of his sister, but others jumped to the supernatural 
and these were somewhat supported by Defeo himself, at least for a short time. The issue was that all six victims were shot in their beds, with no sign of a struggle and having been killed over a short period of time. They were all shot by the same weapon, a .35 Marlin rifle, without using any form of silencer. So, why did no one in the house react, hide or try and escape? During his trial, DeFeo laid out claims that there had been strange events happen leading up to the murder and that demonic voices had made him do it. I should highlight that this is only one of a number of reasons Ronnie DeFeo was, has given for the murders since the events. All other reasons have varied in credibility. However, that's not the end of the story. Almost a year to the date after the murders, the Lutz family moved into the house in which the murders had taken place. They lasted 28 days from December 1975 to January 1976, claiming that they were driven out by paranormal and demonic forces. The full story of the events that allegedly took place on those 28 days were documented in the book The Amityville Horror by Jay Anson, released in 1977. It tells of swarms of flies, disembodied voices, a demon pig creature, blood and black tar-like liquid appearing from nowhere, and of course, an influence on George Lutz, the father to kill his family. The book was a huge success, and sold as a recounting of real supernatural events. People lapped it up, and the Lutz family appeared on several chat shows to talk about what had happened to them. They were a lower, middle-class family trying to work their way up the social ladder, like so many other Americans. This tapped into something with readers and viewers. They had had the American dream pulled out from under them by paranormal means. This could have been anybody. What made this more impactful and taken seriously was the fact that the book wasn't the first telling of the story. Details of the events were released in an article in Good Housekeeping about three months before the book was due to be released. This resulted in some legal action, but worked wonders for the book promotion. This wasn't the National Enquirer or some other tabloid rag. Because it was Good Housekeeping, people felt it came with some level of credibility, and it whetted people's appetite to know more. This was elevated with the third element of horror, when the book was turned into a movie in 1979. While the Satan Cellar had struck a chord with the Christian communities, it had only made a small impact with wider culture. However, the Amityville horror landed squarely in the mass pop culture of the time and brought the possibility of ghost, demonic and satanic invasion home. A year later, Michelle Remembers was released and the satanic panic erupted. However, as I hope I have shown, a series of events that grew out of the counterculture movement of 60s California created an atmosphere and foundation in which this fear and moral panic grew. By 1980, the American public was becoming more conservative and the fear of the other was strong. That other, in this case, was Satan. In the next episode, we'll be digging into Michelle Remembers, its impact, and how satanic experts influenced a court case 
that ruined a small family-run daycare centre. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. Another great 20th Century Geek episode. Thank you for listening. If you would like to get in contact to suggest topics for future shows or just chat about everything nerdy, you can email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. That's 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com. Or find me on social media, Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just search for 20thCenturyGeek. If you would like to support the show, please go on your podcast catcher and leave a five-star review. I would greatly appreciate it. It raises the show in the ranks and lets more people know about the podcast. If you want to show more support for the podcast, we do have an Amazon wishlist. Just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and you will find a list of books that will help with research for future podcasts. And don't forget, we love secondhand books in 20th Century Towers. Once again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.